The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Well, good morning once again, church. Uh, I want to invite you to open your copy of God's Word to Titus chapter 3. That's where we're going to be this morning. And I have the privilege and opportunity to continue uh, our summer series on the fruit of the Spirit. And so this morning, we're going to be talking about kindness. But uh, before we kind of dive into that, I just want to give you a reminder. When we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, the different uh, qualities that come out, from someone who has received the Holy Spirit of God after being saved from their sins. What we're talking about is not different qualities that can be separated out. We're not talking about multiple fruit, but one fruit. So Pastor Scott used the imagery that I think stuck really well for me of like looking at a diamond. As you spin a diamond around, you see different facets to the diamond. And in the same way, as you examine the fruit of the Spirit, these aren't meant to be separated, but different facets or qualities in a person that come when someone has repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus. So what we've been doing this summer is we've been examining each one of those individual characteristics. Even though they're part of the whole, we've been looking at each one in depth. And so this morning, we're talking about kindness. So the main thing that I want you to take away from the sermon, I'm just going to go ahead and just lay it out on the table for you so that you can see it as we walk through this passage, is simply this. Remember the kindness of God. Remember the kindness of God. You could just think of it almost like a one-point sermon today. It's just remember the kindness of God. And everything that we talk about today, it's all going to point back to that main idea and that main concept. So this week, as I was preparing uh, to preach, I asked a few people close to me, what's the difference between love and kindness? And I almost got kind of tangled up in trying to answer this question. Like, we have a, a, the characteristic of the fruit of the Spirit that's love. So how is preaching about love any different than kindness? And so we had all kinds of different thoughts. And I was looking at all kinds of different passages of Scripture. And I just did not know, like, how do you talk about kindness? It seems like such an idea connected to love that, you know, if I talk about kindness, I'm just going to be talking about love the entire time. And what I was led to is as I listed out these different passages where the word kindness was used, each and every time I was driven back to the main point in all of our lives and in all of history where kindness was shown, and that is in the gospel. And so today, we're going to walk through Titus chapter 3, where Paul specifically frames the gospel in the kindness of God. And we're going to do exactly what our purpose is each and every morning, as, as each and every Sunday morning as we come together. And that's just remind ourselves of the gospel. So remember the kindness of God as we walk through the gospel. Before we get into this passage, there's one more thing. I kind of want to set the context for what's going on here. I don't want to just dive into the passage and and not understand what's going on in Titus. In Titus chapter 3, specifically in verses 1 and 2, Paul is commanding Titus, who is the pastor of the church on the island of Crete in the Roman Empire, to instruct his people for two specific things in light of what he's been commanding them in this letter. He tells Titus to instruct the people to submit and to respect the authority of those people who have been placed in authority around them as believers, namely the government and those around them, and also to live humbly to those around them. In essence, what Paul is telling Titus to command to the people is right actions, 
which is a good thing that everyone would agree on, to live peaceably with those who are in authority above them and to live humbly with those around them, seeking not to cause dissensions or any type of strife or anything like that. And in verse 2, when he talks about being gentle, he's using the word that was used to describe Jesus, which is meekness. And what's interesting is that same word is used for one of the, one of the characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit that we'll look at in a few weeks for gentleness. So here in this passage, we actually see a connection for the words that Paul specifically chooses, not only in gentleness, but as we look at our passage for kindness, it's the same word for the fruit of the Spirit. Paul's connecting together thoughts that he wrote to the church at Galatia, as well as to the pastor Titus. So these right actions aren't just to be separated out, but in verses 3 through 7, we're going to look at the basis for those right actions. Why should believers submit to those authorities? Why should they live humbly? In our case as well, it's also why should we pursue the fruit of the Spirit in our lives? We're going to talk about what happens when we separate right actions out. So I want you to remember that we are seeking to look at the kindness of God. That's going to be the root behind everything else that we do. So let's look at Titus chapter 3. Today we're going to start in verse 3 and read through verse 7. For we ourselves were once foolish disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior." So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I don't know if you can see it or not, but really these four verses break down into two sentences. One sentence is going to talk about the greatness of our sin. And the other is going to talk about the greatness of God's loving kindness. So as we remember the kindness of God, let's look at these two sentences individually and see how they tie together. So first is the greatness of our sin. Now, I understand that, especially in our culture today, there's a ten- tendency that we just kind of want to gloss over the sin aspect of the gospel. We want to gloss over our imperfections. We want to gloss over the ways that we've disobeyed God. Sometimes we like to use language that makes our sin lesser. We have a few quirks or a few unique personality traits or whatever it might be. But in order to understand God's kindness, we really have to understand the depth of our sin. Now, the importance in this is not to just look at our sin and then look at ourselves and beat ourselves up because we're awful people. But the point in this is that we might look at our sin, understand our situation, and then be driven to look to God's grace. In verse 3, Paul's reminder for acting correctly in the midst of a corrupt society is based in the reminder that we used to act the same way. He doesn't say act kindly because those poor people who know no better, they just need someone to represent God to them. But instead, he bases it in, act kindly and humbly to those around you because you were like them once. You were lost in your sins. In fact, Paul describes it as we were foolish and disobedient. We were led astray and slaves to various passions and pleasures. He says we were passing our days in malice and envy. And he even says we were hated by others and hating one another. There's no unity there. There's no peace or right relationship there. And what Paul does is he takes the systemic problems of the Roman culture and instead of addressing those problems 
as a whole. He boils everything down into the heart issue behind it. He says that the reason why they should act humbly and respect authorities but also be representatives of God is because the issues that they were facing were not big problems as a whole but to be seen as the result of sinful hearts. The result of sinful hearts. Not much has changed for us today either. We face some similar issues that the church in Crete faced in that day. They're all issues that come from the same root issue, which is sinful hearts. Maybe for us, it's in entertainment and the sinful things that come out of vulgar and crude entertainment around us. It's the corruption of morals, the removal of an absolute standard by which we're to live. Everyone's seeking the truth for themselves, trying to figure out what's right and wrong for themselves without this absolute standard that we as believers understand is God's word and how he has outlined life. Suddenly those morals become corrupt because there's no guiding line by which we can measure morals or even the mistreatment of individuals. And that category can cover a whole Uh, many issues that we're facing today, the mistreatment of individuals. These were all things that were still true in the Roman culture to which Titus was preaching to these believers in Crete. And the issue is for for, for us not to get caught up in the big scheme of things. Yes, we should see the big picture. We should see the big issues. But we cannot forget that these issues come from the fact that it's sinful hearts from which these come from. These come from sinful hearts. This is the root issue behind everything. And as we engage those big issues, as we engage the sinful hearts with the kindness of God in the gospel, we cannot forget that we too were once lost as others were. This isn't meant to elevate us or to make us better or feel better than anyone else, but to humble us because we knew no better. Paul says we were selfish and enslaved This wasn't a small deal. Our issue is not that we've made poor choices. Our issue isn't that we were born with rather neutral hearts. We made some bad choices and that kind of got us in the situation where we have sinful hearts and need saved. But the Bible makes very clear that our issue is sinful hearts and our sin comes from that. And it's also the idea that we were enslaved and we were selfish, that God had revealed himself in his kindness already while we were in this state, but we chose not to recognize it. And that's exactly what Paul writes in Romans chapter 1. Listen to these verses. For his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world. Clearly seen. Being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show him gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. What does this mean? This means simply this. On judgment day, when we stand before God, there is no one in all of creation who can use the excuse, I didn't know. I just, I just didn't know. I didn't know that God had revealed himself. I didn't know when Paul says very clearly here that the point in all creation is to glorify God, to point to our loving creator who made us and who loves us. It's not only that we 
saw God in creation and turned away and chose to ignore it, but that we are guilty of what Tim Keller calls cosmic treason against the God of the universe. This isn't that we have some character flaws. This isn't that uh, there's a few quirks I need to work out or I need to, you know, just a little bit of help from some others and I'll be a good person through and through and I'll be good to go. This is cosmic treason against the author of the universe. We like to take our sin and we like to make it small. And I understand that because I'm guilty of it too. I want to make light of it because then I don't feel so bad. But we have to take a moment and we have to understand and almost even embrace the depth of our sin. We have to think about how our punishment fits the crime. So we think about the just punishment for sinners, which is hell, separated from God forever. And and we look at this idea of hell, this reality of hell, of eternal punishment, and we look at it and we want to turn away from it. Because it is just so terrifying to think about, but also because we don't want to accept it. We want to think, well, God is love, and a loving God, surely, surely he wouldn't do that to anyone who's disobeyed him. But the reality is that the way that life around us is set up well, doesn't it point to this reality as well? So let me give you an example. How many of you have siblings? It's okay, you can raise your hand. Yeah, I don't. I'm just raising my hand to show you. Okay, so I don't have siblings, so this example doesn't work. Um, we've used this in youth, and so it works pretty well. Okay, let's say you can picture back to when you were young. Let's say you slap your sibling. You just deck them across the face, all right? What's the punishment for that? Your parents probably did something. If they didn't find out, you probably had no punishment about that. That's not to practice now either. Yeah, okay, so you know, there was a small punishment for that. Well, let's up the ante a little bit. Let's say you just walk up to mom and dad, and you've just had enough of them for some reason. Again, I'm not encouraging this, just example. And you slap your mom or your dad across the face. Isn't the punishment a little bit worse for that? Okay, so let's say that uh, today on the way home, you're doing a little bit too fast, and, and you get pulled over, and you just don't like how much the police officer wrote the ticket for. So you're like, you know what? And you just slap the police officer across the face. Is the punishment going to be worse for that than slapping your brother or sister or whoever it may be? Okay, now let's take one more example. Let's say it is someone in high authority. Let's just say it's a president or whatever it might be. Let's say by some way you get up to him and you just slap someone in authority, president of whatever nation, the ruler of whatever nation, you slap that person across the face. Is that punishment going to be worse than for the police officer or for your brother or sister or for your parent? It it gets worse. Now, these are all human beings. What makes the difference? Their position of authority makes the difference. And so we look at that and we're like, yeah, that makes sense. It's it's the same action carried out by the same person. The difference is the person in authority. But when we look at God and when we look at the fact that he is infinite, eternal, all-powerful, and we have committed treason against him, disobeyed him in the most heinous of crimes, and we look at the punishment of hell and we think, well, that's too severe. We have no ground on which to stand and to make that argument. We have no ground on which to stand. We hear that hell's a punishment and we shrink back. The root issue is not the actions behind this. It's our hearts. It's our hearts that condemn us. Guys, we aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. A lot of times we want to think that the outward actions of disobedience against God and hurting others, that is what makes our hearts sinful. It's these outward actions, but it's the reverse 
Our outward actions show the state of our inward hearts. These sinful actions of disobedience come from sinful hearts. So there's a difference there. We, we aren't sinners because we sin. Our, our outward actions aren't corrupting our hearts more and more and more as much as it is we have corrupt hearts that result in sinful actions. That's the importance of the fruit of the Spirit. That's why Paul writes about the fruit because he's saying that when the Spirit has come into our lives, when we repent of our sins and trust in Jesus, then those outward actions are going to change because our hearts have been restored. They've been brought to life. They're not sinful hearts, but hearts remade by the blood of Christ and the power of the Spirit. It's not the other way around. It's not that good actions can save us. I remember that I was in high school and I had an opportunity uh, while I was growing up in West Virginia to um, do some mission projects to help create opportunities to share the gospel with others. So one of the things we did was actually really small. I thought it was kind of funny at first because I didn't think it would have much impact. But all we did is we went into a local grocery store and we got permission from the manager and we would just bag the groceries. They didn't have anyone there who would normally bag them. They just had a cashier. So a team of us just stood beside the cashier and we would just bag the groceries. Now the reason why this is interesting is because oftentimes we would have like the Girl Scouts or the Boy Scouts. They would bag the groceries and carry it out to your car and then they would ask for a donation. But But when we went to do that, we did so refusing donations. We wouldn't take them. And that would almost be the icebreaker through which we could share the gospel. So not only did I have an opportunity to to share with the cashier that I was standing beside this entire time because they weren't in on it. They were pretty much amazed at what we were doing. But I remember in particular this one gentleman came through the line. He was a really good guy. He was really polite and everything. He sets his groceries up on the, the belt and we check them out, put them in the bag. And I just told him, he, he tried to, to give like a $5 bill, and I said, sir, we're just not accepting donations. We just want to do this to show you that God loves you, and we want to let you know that he sent his son to die for you so you can be saved from your sins. And I'll never forget, he looked at me. And he was very confident in his answer as he looked at me. He says, I've done enough good things. I'm all right, but thank you. That was his answer. That's what he was bank- banking on. He thought that those good actions that he could do would be enough to save him so that when he would stand before God on the day of judgment where you give an account for your actions, he would just be like, well, I I did the best I could. In Romans 1, it leaves no room for that. That's not the reality of our sin. It's so much more than that. Trying to save ourselves apart from Christ is actually something that Paul addresses in verse 5. When he writes, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, that's the best way that we can really translate from the, English, from the original language into English. What Paul's, in essence, saying or trying to convey these works in righteousness. Don't think works in righteousness like works in Christ's righteousness. Like the works to which Jesus saved us. He's not talking about those. What's kind of the connotation here is more religious actions. Not on account of religious actions. So for us, to update it, not on account of how many times that we went to church. Not on account of how many Bible verses we have memorized. Not on account of how many times we sang the songs. Not on account of how many times we opened our Bible. Not on account of how many times we prayed. God did not save us on account of any of those things. He saved us on account of his kindness. Trying to save ourselves with good actions is like trying to save a dead tree by duct taping a good fruit to it. We talked about this at Drama Camp. In God's goodness, Drama Camp was all based around the fruit of the Spirit before we even knew what we were doing this summer. And that's one of the things that we we talked about with the kids. Is when you see a dead tree, 
a dead apple tree that has just moldy, disgusting apples. You don't think that the solution to save the apple tree is to walk over to a good tree, pick a beautiful apple off of it, and duct tape that good apple around the branch. Like That's not, the tree's still dead. It doesn't save anything. It doesn't solve anything. The solution to saving that tree is to take the tree down and to plant a new one. And that's what God's saying to us here. It's not that good actions duct tape to our sinful hearts can save us. It's not that good actions apart from Christ can do anything to help our standing before God. It can do nothing. But when we repent of our sins, when we trust in the gift of salvation made available through Jesus, we are given new hearts. And out of that comes good fruit. Out of that comes those actions which bring delight to God. So we're remade, we're given new hearts, and we have a desire to come be with his people on Sunday mornings at church. We have a desire to meet with him in his word as he's revealed himself to us. We have a desire to communicate with him through prayer, through memorizing scripture, and on and on it goes. At the root of trying to save ourselves, do you realize it's selfishness just as much? We think it looks good trying to save ourselves and trying to give good actions, but the root of that is still trying to turn away from God and trying to do things on our own, which is the very thing that we're guilty of in the first place. And trying to save ourselves under our own power, we're guilty of just increasing the sin all the more. We can't save ourselves. So we've committed cosmic treason against the eternal God of the universe. Our punishment is hell. There is no amount of good actions, good things, church things, religious things, in particular that Paul writes about, that we can do to save ourselves. So what do we do next? And that's where Paul writes in verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Our situation is dire. We are dead in our sins, no way to save ourselves, nothing we can do to better our situation under our own power, but when the goodness and loving kindness of our God appeared. You ever think about how great God is? How powerful God is? I was listening to a sermon by David Platt this week. He did an incredible job of explaining the greatness of God. And so I thought about it this way. Let me give you a little context before we kind of go into these. I've got some facts about the universe and stuff I want to tell you, but let's think of it this way. When I was a kid, one of my favorite things to play with was Legos. I loved Legos. And the best thing I ever made out of them was like a cube. I could not figure out for the life of me how people got these like... Uh, we were walking in downtown Greenville yesterday and there was like this, this Ferris wheel that was taller than me and like rotating around and it was like people in it and it was just so neat. And me, I was like... I can put one Lego on another and it makes two Legos. Like, that's the best I can do at creativity. I don't know why. I was never gifted at that. So I'm thinking about God creating everything in the midst of I can put two Legos together. And even greater than that, God didn't have anything to start with. It's not like God had some material spoke and everything came to being. It's he had nothing. So to put it in the Lego context, it's like me having no Legos somehow putting a roller coaster together or something. It doesn't, it doesn't work. So God spoke and created the expanse of the universe. So the observable universe, which is as far as we can see, that doesn't mean they're all, that's all there is to it, is 91 billion light years in diameter. That's as far as we can see. So a light year is the distance that light can travel in a year. It's really far because obviously we can't really measure how fast, you know, light speed right now in front of us. To put it into miles, I don't know what number this is, it's five with 23 zeros after it, miles. 
really big number. There's 100 billion stars in each of the 10 billion galaxies. This is a conservative estimate. They're, they're not trying to make the number too big, all right? Which would mean that if that's true, there's 1 billion trillion stars in the sky. 1 billion trillion stars in the sky. For us to, so just bring it in a little bit, in the Milky Way galaxy where we live, in order to travel across it, first of all, Einstein theorized that we can't travel at the speed of light. So let's just give ourselves the benefit of the doubt and say one day we can travel at 99% of the speed of light, which is the fastest we know anything can go. It would take 101,000 years to travel across just our own galaxy. And even if we make it a little bit closer to our own solar system, Mars, the planet that's the closest to us, at its nearest point in orbit, when we send the drones and stuff to go explore Mars, it takes them 300 days to get there. And in that time, they'll travel about 55 million kilometers. That's the expanse of the universe. And God spoke, and all of that came into being. He named every star, saw fit where their exact position would be. He sustains every heavenly body, and it's no challenge at all to him for the expanse of the universe. But even more than that, think about the intricacy of everything he created. For most of us, there's 100 billion neurons in the human brain. For most of us as well, there's an average of 100,000 hair follicles. You don't have to count those. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm just saying on average. So there's 100 billion neurons in your brain right now, and the average human head has 100,000 hair follicles. In addition to that, you have 35 billion skin cells on your body right now. 35 billion. And at the same time, the God who spoke the expanse of the universe... And it's 91 billion light years apart. Knows the exact state of every single one of the neurons in your brain. Of the 100 billion neurons. The exact time that one of the 100,000 hair follicles on your head turns gray. He knows the exact state of every single one of the 35 billion skin cells on your body. And he is not challenged by that. And that's only the tip of the iceberg. He knows the thoughts of all of us. He knows our desires, our passions. He knows us better than we know ourselves. Of all of the over 7 billion people on the planet, God knows every intricate detail and he is not challenged. He does not sit down at the end of the day, wore out. He's not even taxed by his ability to sustain all things. In merely speaking, he created and he sustains And the same God who is in control over all of those things, who names every star, who knows when any hair turns gray and is not challenged by this, took it upon himself to make salvation possible. He had no reason to. God did not need us to complete his satisfaction. He did not need us to complete his plan. He was ultimately glorified in himself. He was not lonely. He had perfect community in the fact that he is a Trinitarian God. Instead, the God who created and sustains all things saw fit to invite us in to experience this community that he has in himself in a plan orchestrated by the Father, obeyed perfectly by the Son, and revealed to us Through the Holy Spirit, God saw fit to reach out to us. When we could not save ourselves, when we looked at his creation and disobeyed him, committed treason against him, this God who could have easily just ended it there in kindness made a way 
of salvation possible. And when we see the kindness of a God who does not need us, but he wants us, it changes us. To know that you're not needed, that you can contribute absolutely nothing to what God needs, to who God is. You contribute nothing to that, but he looks at you and loves you and desires and wants you all the same. That changes us. This is the same kindness, the same kindness that Paul writes about in this passage. The same kindness that God extends to us is the same kindness that we can emulate to others. It's the same kindness that Paul says to live humbly with. It's the same fruit of the Spirit that's revealed to us by God, the Holy Spirit himself. He brings out in us when we repent of our sins and when we trust in Jesus. It's the same kindness that we can show just a small picture of to those around us. And here's the beautiful part of our salvation. It's not like God looked at us, wanted us, and then just kind of cleaned the slate on the sin and kind of put up with us. It's that through Christ, God saved us. We were justified. That is, our sins were paid for in full, and we were granted Christ's righteousness. But then also, if you look in verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's not just that our sins are paid for and we're given Christ's righteousness. We become heirs of a future promise that is yet to come to us. We did nothing to deserve forgiveness of sins, but God even gives us his delight and eternal satisfaction and an inheritance that is yet to come. Peter would write about this in 1 Peter 1. He said this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief and various trials so that the proven character of your faith more valuable than gold, which, though perishable, is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him, and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We've been born again, bought by the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and his spilled blood to an inheritance that is kept for us. God would reveal more about this inheritance to John in Revelation chapter 21 where we get a glimpse of the new creation. And in that, we see that he wipes every tear from their eye, that pain and death are no more, and that creation is remade to become really even better than the Garden of Eden ever was. But the pinnacle of all of those things is the greatest inheritance we receive, which is God. We get God. We get to spend eternity, for those of us who have repented of our sins and trusted in Jesus to save us, we get to spend eternity with the God who created the expanse of the universe and the intricacies of our bodies and of the plants of everything around us, who revealed himself in creation and who loves us and wants us. That is our inheritance. We get him. And honestly, this is where satisfaction is found in knowing that God's salvation is to the glory of his name. 
if you look again in verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. When we see that, we see that we receive the benefits of it, but it's not to make ourselves look good. Remember, this is the basis for right living as Paul told Titus to communicate to his people. Instead, it's to the glory of God's name. And when we recognize that that is our purpose, that's why God has made us and created us, is to give glory to him, to make much of him, to represent him well. This is where satisfaction is found. And this is why the Spirit shows himself in our lives, gives evidence to our salvation through these fruits. Through these characteristics, which are reflections of the character of God. Because there's no other way through which we'd be satisfied. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has put eternity into the hearts of man. The only way to be satisfied is with an eternal God. So we see the kindness of God. So let's just end with this application. So what? So what do we do? We understand that we were sinners who could not save ourselves. Our state wasn't just that we kind of did a few things wrong, but we committed cosmic treason and we deserve an eternal punishment. But God, through his son, Jesus Christ, through his perfect life, his death in our place and resurrection has made salvation possible when he did not need to, had no need for us, but wanted us, made salvation possible. How do we live in light of that? I'm going to make it simple. Be kind. Isn't that nice? Be kind. Really easy to remember. Be kind. But let me talk about how. Um, obviously this is not an exhaustive list, but just some ways that we can be kind. One of the ways that we can be kind is first reminding ourselves of the gospel. So you might ask how that leads to kindness, and the reality is that when we remind ourselves of this, what we've just looked at in Titus, when we spend every day preaching the gospel to ourselves, then we're starting our, our day out with this reminder of God's kindness to us, which is the fuel and the motivation to be kind to others. So one of the ways that we can be kind is by reminding ourselves of the gospel. Oftentimes we do this through Bible reading, uh, a devotion, maybe called a quiet time, through prayer, through community with God's people like here in worship now, we have an opportunity to be kind. Uh, My favorite sport is NBA. And so especially like during the finals, I just absolutely love to tune in and to watch basketball. And honestly, one of my favorite things has become uh, in the game, one of the things they do is they mic up the coaches so that when they call timeouts and stuff, you can see what's, what the coach is saying. It's particularly entertaining when a team is down by like 30 and you're like, man, what's this coach going to say? Like, all right, guys, let's just try to get out of here. No, but So there's different things that the coach says. But it, even when the team is in the lead, the coach will bring them together. He'll remind them of what they're doing right and then encourage them to keep doing those things. One of the things that coaches say so often, especially in games like the championship, like the finals, is don't let up. Don't stop. We're, doing, we're, we're passing the ball right. We're shooting the ball. We're taking good shots. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. Keep it up. In the same way, preaching the gospel is almost like giving ourselves a talk from the coach. We see how God has revealed himself in his word and revealed the gospel to us. So it's like giving ourselves that talk. All right, we, we see that God has saved us. I, I see that I am saved. I don't need to move on from the gospel. I need to remind myself of it. I need to keep it up. I need to keep going. I need to, sh- to keep showing kindness to those around me. It, it's like encouraging ourselves, building ourselves up and reminding ourselves of our purpose in life. So one of the ways that we can be kind is simply by reminding ourselves of the gospel. Another way is by engaging the culture. First way that we can engage the culture is in sharing the gospel. I recognize 
and I feel this temptation in my heart every time I go to share the gospel, that we can be tempted to think that the kindest thing we could ever do is not offend someone. That the kindest thing we could ever do is just never talk about sin or our need for salvation. Because it can be awkward and it can be difficult to point out that we need saved, that we have flaws, that we have committed that cosmic treason. But the reality is that the kindest thing we could ever do for someone is tell them that a way of salvation has been made through Jesus Christ. The kindest thing we could ever do for someone is share the gospel with them. It's not kind to leave someone in their sins and not tell them that there's a way to be saved. It's not kind to, in essence, leave someone in the water to die if you have a way to save them. It is kind to share that way of salvation with them. And God's shown his kindness to us in confronting us with our sins. Again, we go back to a loving God. He couldn't send anyone to hell. But think about this. A loving God looks us in the eyes and tells us the reality, as brutal as it is, of our sin and the punishment for it. A loving God would not look at you knowing the punishment that's to come, look you in the eyes and be like, ah, you'll be fine. That would be deceptive. That would be evil to just know that what's coming for someone who's sinned and just be like, ah, it's it's all right, you're going to be okay. Instead, it was the kindness of God to confront us in our sin in the same way we should seek to share the gospel with others that they might be saved from their sins. This is the greatest act of kindness we could ever do. Maybe you don't think that there's people around you that you can share with. Think about this. Grocery stores. There are people who work the checkout lines there. Maybe one time, instead of using the self-checkout, there's a grocery store you go to pretty often, and you know the same cashier works, a register, so you just pick their register each and every time. You get to have a little conversation each time you're unloading the groceries. Maybe it's when you go to a place that everyone dreads, the DMV. I'm telling you, there are a lot of people at the DMV who need Jesus. I don't think we need to argue about that. So the DMV, at work, those around you at work that you can share with, that maybe you sit beside every day, you encounter every day, they're on your team and you're working together, just finding opportunities very gently to share the gospel with them at restaurants, sharing the gospel. There are opportunities to share the story of what God has done for us every single day. Don't miss them. Don't miss them. So in sharing the gospel... This is also connected to it, but also in speaking out in kindness. One of the things that I've learned with the increase of technology is I've never seen anyone converted to Jesus by bashing them on a Facebook post. It's odd how that works. But that is a reality, a temptation to which especially my generation faces that when we disagree on an issue, it's just so easy to type out an insult, to type out, well, you don't know what you're thinking and whatever it is. And it's very small. But what if we engaged people we disagreed with on social media and especially in real life with kindness? What if instead of trying to argue them to Jesus and bash them, we used kindness? What if instead of someone who has a different political affiliation than us, instead of insulting them, we stopped and looked at the heart issue behind everything and just continued to engage them with kindness until an opportunity came up to share them the gospel. Because the reality is that the Republican or the Democratic Party is not eternal, but only the kingdom of God is. 
So it's about speaking out and keeping eternity in mind, keeping the gospel in mind and living, as Paul wrote in Titus, humbly, as we see in this particular aspect of the fruit of the Spirit in kindness, that we might get those gospel opportunities. It's also about speaking up against abortion, against racism. It's about helping those who need help, remembering that these are big issues that we need to engage with the light of the gospel and not forgetting that sinful hearts are at the root and the gospel is the solution to these issues. The gospel is the solution. It's about speaking up for that. Ultimately, we're going to be known for the way that we treat others. I'll close with this. Um, C.S. Lewis, you might know him for how he wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Red Wardrobe, the, the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, C.S. Lewis was an, also an incredible uh, theologian. He wrote very, very good arguments um, that I would encourage you to read. And as I was doing some research for it, um, Caleb t- helped me find this argument from C.S. Lewis. And so while I don't think this is necessarily true of the character of God, I thought that was an incredible argument that we should keep in mind for kindness. In essence, Lewis wrote in one of his books that kindness from one human to another is the temporary removal of suffering and kind of replacing that of happiness. So if you think about someone who has done an act of kindness for you, when you receive that act of kindness, probably most visibly, let's say, a Christmas present. When you receive that Christmas present, almost for a moment, you forget kind of everything else that's going on and you're filled with joy and happiness at this present. Like someone got you something. It's a gift. And for a moment, what, whatever you're going through is removed because in kindness, someone acted and gave you a gift. So Lewis argues that's the difference between love and kindness. Love sees the big picture, and kindness is an act that removes temporary suffering just for a moment, but replaces it with happiness. Think about if we kept that argument from kindness in mind, and we sought to take advantage of those opportunities each and every week to those around us. We just found ways to act kindly and to remove suffering for a moment and to replace it with happiness through an act of kindness that we could do. Think about how many gospel opportunities that would open up if we just sought to act in kindness towards those around us. If instead of we were known for bashing people, we just took advantage of small opportunities to act in kindness. So we can be kind by reminding ourselves of the gospel, of rooting ourselves in that. We can be kind in engaging the culture and sharing the gospel and speaking out against injustice and in acting kindly. But the reality is this. As we close, I just want to go back to this illustration that we used earlier. Acting in kindness, seeking to be kind to others, all of these things, they're meaningless apart from a saving relationship through Jesus Christ. They're meaningless if you've never turned away from your sins and trusted in Jesus to save you. If you think that simply being a kind person apart from Jesus, you can save yourself, it's no more foolish than taking a good apple and duct taping it to a bad tree and saying, fixed it. It doesn't work. And all of those things that we do apart from Christ, that we try to make ourselves look good, maybe it's not acting kind, maybe it really is just if you think that you're at church every time the doors are open, if you think that you're praying as much as you can, if you think X, Y, or Z apart from Christ, those things are meaningless. They do not save you. In fact, you're continuing in the sin of which you're guilty in the first place, which is trusting in yourself and not in God. And I want to encourage you today, don't let another moment go by without repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus to save you. So I'm going to pray for us. 
Ethan's going to come forward, and I'll give you some instruction on what we can do. Let's pray. God, thank you for your kindness as you've shown so clearly in Jesus. Thank you that you've acted in love towards us, the creator and sustainer of all things, never challenged, all-powerful. You reached out to us who could not save ourselves, who had committed treason against you, had no basis for which we should be saved, but God, you made that way of salvation available. God, if there's anyone in here today who has never trusted you for salvation, God, I pray that today would be that day. And for those of us in here who have experienced it, God, would that lead us to worship perhaps like we never have before? God, would you give us a new understanding of this? Father, we love you. We praise you. It's in Jesus' name. Uh, Give this opportunity to respond to the preaching of God's word. Maybe you're here today and you recognize that you have never trusted in Jesus to save you. This is a great opportunity to do that. I'll be in the front. If you want to know more about what it means to follow Jesus and to repent of your sins, I'd love to talk with you about those things. Maybe you're here today and you've already experienced the salvation of God. You've already trusted him for salvation. I pray that today the motivation for your worship in singing and in living in kindness as we go throughout the week will be a new, maybe even a fuller understanding of the gospel, of the gap that existed between God and I, that was God and us, that was bridged by Christ. That it would be the motivation through which you do everything because how could a God so powerful, the creator and sustainer, how could he love us? So even as we have an opportunity to sing, I want to encourage you to sing from an understanding of knowing what God has done for us. However the Spirit leads you to respond, do that today. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.